When it comes to roads, there are different types. Dirt roads, paved roads, country roads, super highways, back alleys, even cobblestone streets. There are also some famous roads. Wall Street, Pennsylvania Avenue. You know who lives there? The president. Sunset Boulevard, Peachtree Street. Oh my. The German Autobahn is a famous road. You know, I got to drive on the German Autobahn one time. It was a frustrating experience because I had an economy car. <laughs> Boardwalk and Park Place. There's some famous streets for you. Here's a street, the road to the Final Four. How's that for a, a timely uh, street? And of course, of course, there is the Yellow Brick Road. You know, there's some even famous roads in the Bible. In Acts chapter 9, the angry rabbi Saul becomes a follower of Jesus on the road to Damascus. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Acts 8, Philip witnessed to an Ethiopian on the road to Gaza. All famous roads. But of all the roads, biblical and otherwise, the most famous in history is the Via Dolorosa. This is the path that Jesus took. From Pilate's judgment hall to a hill called Golgotha. On to the tomb of a rich man. The term Via Dolorosa is Latin for the way of sorrows. And indeed it was. This evening I want to take you on a walk down the Via Dolorosa. I would prefer to charter a plane and fly you all to Jerusalem's old city. Its arches and its stone streets. We could walk down the alleyways together. And yet there are Jerusalemites who comb those streets every day, and they never feel the importance of the events that we'll discuss tonight. Likewise, there are people who read John chapter 19, and they take what happened there for granted. This is why I'm praying that something else happens to us tonight. That as we read John's account of the cross, I'm praying that it hits us. He did it for me. From time to night, time to time tonight, we're going to pause in our commentary, and we're going to take a moment, and we're going to whisper to ourselves, He did this for me. If we understand the real message of John chapter 19, there will be tears, there will be tear stains on the pages when we fold up our Bibles tonight. Now recall in John 18, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. A scuffle occurs in the garden. Peter draws a sword and he lops off the ear of the arresting officer. John tells us that Jesus rebukes Peter. Luke says he reattaches the ear. Notice Jesus heals the wound inflicted by one of his own men. And sadly, how often has he had to repeat that miracle over the years? Clean up our messes. Jesus was then taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he was sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. The Jews then shuttled him across town to the Roman governor, Pilate. Only the Romans were allowed to perform executions. This is why the Jews needed Pilate to sign off on their hatred and prejudice and jealousy. Pilate tries to win a reprieve for Jesus. He offers to release a prisoner And gives the crowd a choice between Jesus and a menace to society. A real troublemaker. A guy named Barabbas. Surprisingly, they choose the rabble rouser and ask for the Prince of Peace to be put to death. Well, this gets us up to speed. Chapter 19 follows. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. This scourging had a nickname. It was referred to as the halfway death. For many victims never survived the scourging. It was so brutal. The Roman flagellum consisted of 12, 13 leather thongs attached to a single handle. A lead ball was placed at the end of the cords. And little pieces of glass or metal or ivory were embedded into the thongs between the ball and the handle. 
The victim was tied by the wrist and he was dangled, oh, about a foot or so off the ground. Then he was beaten mercilessly with strong, strong lashes. 39 lashes at full force were laid to the back of Jesus. The ordeal was carried out by professional executioners who were accustomed to the sight of blood and who had such a callous conscience, they didn't blink when they administered this beating. The first blows would cause welts to form on the shoulders and the back. By the seventh or eighth blow, the glass and the metal had sliced through the skin layers and were now churning up muscle. It was not uncommon for a rib bone to fly off of the body after one of the blows. At the end of the beating, the victim's back was the texture of hamburger meat. At the conclusion of the beating, the victim was cut down and he would hit the pavement in a puddle of his own urine and feces and sweat and blood. It was awful. The ancient historian Eusebius, he writes of the martyrs who endured such beatings. He says, they were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and their organs were exposed to sight. You could see their inner organs. Medical doctor William Edwards gives an accurate description. He says, the iron balls would cause deep contusions. The leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Now let that sink into you. Quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. After this scourging, Jesus resembled a sacrificial lamb. Now, I want you to close your eyes. I want everybody to close your eyes. And I want you to whisper these words. He did it for me. Say it with me. He did it for me. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now these thorns, the word can be translated briars. They were sharp. They were pointed needles. There are several species of plants around Jerusalem that grow such thorns. And the torturers, they didn't just lightly lay this crown on Jesus' head. No, they smashed it into place. They literally screwed it onto his scalp. Like little daggers. It caused blood to flow down Jesus' defigured face. Here is the only crown King Jesus ever wore on earth. It was a crown of thorns. And He did it for you. It's interesting that man's sin brought thorns and thistles into an originally hassle-free world. But now in the bearing of our sin, the sin of the world... It's symbolically fitting that Jesus is crowned with a wreath of thorns. And they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. You know, the prophet Isaiah speaks prophetically of an additional gory detail that's not actually mentioned in the Gospels. Isaiah 50 verse 6 quotes the crucified Christ. He says, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks... To those who plucked out my beard, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. When Nick was a little baby, I I wore a beard. He was a strong little baby. He was never really much of a baby. He kind of came into the world sort of a toddler. He had a grip on him from the very beginning. And every now and then, his little hands would get caught up in my beard. And you know how those kids have that jerking reflex? And he would grab a handful of hair and he'd almost jerk my beard right out of my face. And boy, it was painful. That's just a little kid reaching up and getting his hands tangled up in your, your beard. Here, grown men reach up and they rip out Jesus' beard. They pull out handfuls of skin and blood and flesh. Hey, close your eyes again. And say it with me. He did it for me. Today when you go to the old Jerusalem, 
you can visit the place where the scourging of Jesus took place. It's one of my favorite sites there in Jerusalem. One of the most meaningful, powerful places to go in Jerusalem. It's called the Lithostratus. It's a Greek word which means raised pavement. This was part of the fortress of Antonio, Pilate's judgment hall and the Roman headquarters there on the Temple Mount. Today the pavement sits several feet below street level. But the excavations allow you to actually go down and stand on the very stones over which Jesus was scourged. And I don't lie to you, I tell you, the stones are kind of reddish in in appearance. And it's almost as if they give you the impression that they're stained with blood. It's powerful to be there. For me, the Lithostratus is holy ground. It's It's a powerful place for reflection. An interesting discovery was found at this Lithostratus carved into the stones are lines and circles that make up a game that the Roman soldiers played on their victims. In fact, it's not unique to Israel. It's found in Roman outposts all over the old Roman Empire. It's called the King's Game. And it was designed to mock the victim and sort of entertain the callous soldiers as they were carrying out this execution. This is why they twisted the crown of thorns on Jesus' head and they threw this purple robe over his shoulders. It was all part of this game they were playing. In fact, here's a picture of the game. Uh, It's in the stones, but it's kind of hard to see through the picture. But this is a a drawing of the game that's actually in the stones there at the Lithostrata. You'll notice that the circle is the crown of the king. B is the initial for basilicus, which is Latin for king. The scorpion was the symbol of the Roman legion that carried out the execution. The double square represents the dice that the soldiers tossed in playing the game. The horizontal line is the victim's life. And you'll notice down at the end where the sword crosses the line, that's where the victim's life was ended and where he was executed. To me, this all adds to the horror of what they did to Jesus, to think they were playing a game with God's Son. That this was all a game to them. They were making sport while killing God. Verse 4 tells us, Pilate then went out again, and he said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate didn't see anything guilty about Jesus. And then Jesus came out wearing this crown of thorns and this purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man, in Latin, ecce homo, behold the man. Today, Pilate's words have become a famous phrase. It challenges the skeptic to examine the majesty and miracles and identity of Jesus. If you take the time and if you make the effort to behold the man, your doubts will flee and your faith will grow. In fact, you'll fall down and you'll worship him as Lord and God. But when Pilate uttered these words, they were really an attempt to conjure up sympathy for Jesus. As cruel as it seems, the awful scourging he inflicted was Pilate's attempt to sort of prompt Jesus' release. He knew that he was innocent. And how could anyone with a shred of decency not pity this man after having endured such torture? Surely the Jews would cry, enough! And they would have mercy on Jesus, and they would want to set him free, and Pilate could do so. But when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Oh my, some of the same folks that greeted Jesus just a few days earlier saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, are now crying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he had made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. You see, according to Matthew 27 in verse 19, earlier Pilate's wife, history knows her as Claudia Procula, She sent word to her husband concerning Jesus. She said, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. 
his wife's dream, now the power of this man's presence, now his claim to be the son of God, it shook Pilate up. He doesn't like the responsibility of this decision. He would prefer to placate the Jews. I mean, that's his job. That's what the Romans want him to do. But he can't escape the searching eyes of this man named Jesus. You know, you can't escape those searching eyes either, friend. And you're responsible to make a decision. You're going to have to cast a verdict on Jesus. You can't escape it. You've either got to bow to Him or walk away from Him. But you can't have it both ways. You've got to choose and decide what you'll do with Jesus. Pilate tries to avoid this decision. He's a politician. He's a professional compromiser. He's saying, come on, Jews, work with me. But they're not. They'd have no intention on doing so. Verse 9, and he went again into the praetorium, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Jesus isn't interested in chit-chat here. Jesus isn't going to release more information to Pilate until Pilate is willing to obey what he's already been told. You remember they had already had a discussion. You remember from back in chapter 18. Why should Jesus talk to anyone who won't obey what he's already been told? In fact, is this the reason Jesus hasn't been speaking to you lately? Pilate threatens Jesus. He flexes some Roman muscle here. He says, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And this prompts a response from Jesus. You don't threaten the Son of God. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate thinks he's in control, but he's just a pawn in the game. All these events are unfolding according to God's will. It wasn't Jesus on trial before Pilate. It was Pilate on trial before Jesus. And Jesus adds, Therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And I think Jesus is empathizing here with Pilate's predicament. Judas, on the other hand, he knew better. He had had three and a half years with Jesus. And yet he had denied what he had learned. And he had betrayed his master. Pilate, on the other hand, he interviews Jesus one time and he has to make this incredible decision. You know, sometimes life unfolds in unexpected ways. Sometimes decisions are thrust at us that we don't ask for, but we're responsible to make. And Jesus is encouraging Pilate to make the right decision. Verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. For whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the Jews had already complained to Rome about Pilate's heavy-handed tactics and his insensitivity toward their religion. So now they, they conjure up another accusation to accuse, to report to Rome about Pilate. You know, that he's, that he's allowing... A guy to run around claiming to be king. Pilate's between a rock and a hard place here. He wants justice for Jesus. But at the same time, too, he's watching out for his own skin. And you know, he's going to have to choose. Political expedience or personal integrity. You can't honor Jesus and watch your own back at the same time. You've got to choose. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and he set him down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. This is part of the lithostratus that was in the Antonio. You know, it's interesting, specific pavements were traditional sites of Roman justice. In fact, when Julius Caesar traveled into battle, he carried with him a portable mosaic pavement that he would set up to judge his conquered opponents. These, these areas, these paved areas, these mosaic tiles and pavements were places of judgment. Verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. 
Unlike the other gospel writers, John uses Roman time. They use Jewish time. John uses Roman time. The sixth hour was 6 a.m. Jews started counting hours at dawn. The Romans started counting them at midnight. He says, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and they led him away. You know, the Roman motto was, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. As a Roman, Pilate had this great respect for justice, coupled with his fear of Jesus. And yet, yet he finally breaks here, when it becomes personal, when his own life is threatened, when they threaten to report him for treason, then suddenly he, he breaks and he turns his back on justice and on Jesus and orders his execution. There is a legend that following the resurrection, Pilate's wife, Claudia, became a Christian. She embraced the risen Christ and became a follower of Jesus. Pilate's ultimate plight was just the opposite. Eventually, Pilate became prey to what he tried so hard to avoid. The Jews forced his removal. And Pilate's superior, a man named Vitellius, ordered him back to Rome. But he failed to ever arrive. The 4th century church historian Eusebius says that Pilate committed suicide en route to Rome. Verse 17, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Golgotha. This is the Hebrew word, the Greek word, is Calvaria, or Calvary. It's a derivative of our English term, cranium. Jesus was taken to the place of the skull. In Jerusalem, just north of the old city, just outside the Damascus Gate, is a former quarry. Solomon cut granite from this site that he used to build the temple. And in the wake of the excavations there, there, there is a, there's a knoll, uh, an outcropping of rock, which actually looks like a skull. And it was just either above this skull hill or at the base of this skull hill that Jesus was crucified. It's also interesting that just beyond skull hill, there's a garden. And in this garden, there's a tomb. And so another uh, affirmation that this was the site where Jesus was crucified because it would have been easy to take him then to the garden tomb not too far away. In 1883, a British general named Charles Gordon was living there in the north part of Jerusalem. And he looked out and he identified this site. He went and researched it. And he believed that this was the Golgotha of Bible times. This is why today the hill is called Gordon's Calvary. Rome crucified its criminals in the public square for all to see. They made examples out of those who were being crucified. That was the whole point of crucifixion. It was this same sort of atmosphere that was created in the Wild West days, you know, with the public hangings, you know, where people would flock out to see it. It was a deterrent to crime. It was the way the Romans would keep the masses in their place through crucifixion. This is why usually the crucifixions occurred next to busy roads. And this is why Golgotha sits beside the road to Damascus. It was right there. The road was right in front of Skull Hill. Either Jesus was crucified on the top of this mountain for everyone to see or at its base right next to the road so all of the passers-by would be able to witness the sight. Now, when we think of the cross, we, we imagine the traditional shape of the cross. It's in the form of a lowercase t. But Roman crosses came in different configurations. Some were X's, some were Y's, others were like uh, uppercase T's. Some were eyes just on a single pole. We're not sure the exact shape of Jesus' cross. He was forced to carry the cross beam. It probably weighed in the neighborhood of about 75 pounds. Imagine what Jesus has been through now. 
the torture, the night before, the bleeding, everything that he's endured, and he's being required now to carry a 75-pound piece of roughed-out timber. And he had to carry it quite a distance. It's a long way from the fortress of Antonio to Calvary, and it's all uphill. And so they took him there to Skull Hill, and we're told where they crucified him. Don't just skip over that. Don't skip over what that means. They crucified him. If you had ever seen a real crucifixion, you would have had nightmares for months afterwards. It would have turned your stomach. You would have turned your head. Crucifixion was the most heinous form of execution ever devised. It was C.S. Lewis who noted, the crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. The cross was a symbol of torture and pain. The victim's body was stretched out on this piece of timber. His ankles were coupled together and a single spike was driven through them into the wood. A spike also was driven through the victim's wrists or hands. The wood was then lifted up to an upright position where the weight of the victim's body would then press down on the wounds, causing searing pain. Every breath that he would take would require him to sort of press on the wounds in order to elevate himself so he could open his lungs and take in a, a, a clump of air. Every time he took a breath, it was painful. In fact, some victims gave up and they suffocated to death. Others died of a ruptured heart. The non-oxygenated blood would get sluggish. The blood pressure would drop. The overworked heart would literally explode in the victim's chest. Who crucified Jesus? The Jews, they crucified Jesus. They played a part. The Romans, oh yes, they played a part as well. But who really crucified Jesus? Here's where you need to close your eyes and you need to whisper again. He did it for me. He did it for me. We drove the nails into His hands and feet. Our sin, our shortcomings caused Jesus to go to the cross. It's been said Every man is born with a fistful of nails and he dies with his hands empty. We're all guilty, my friends. And two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus was in the center. There were three men that day that were crucified. You know, the Romans, they usually crucified the worst criminal in the middle. And it must have seemed grossly inappropriate at the time for Jesus to be in the middle. And yet, since Jesus died for the sin of the whole world, it was probably right that He be the centerpiece that day. Verse 19, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. You know, Jerusalem was, and it still is today, a very cosmopolitan place. People from all over the world, they go to Jerusalem, especially on the Passover. This particular placard described the accusation against Jesus, and it was written in the three most common languages spoken there in Palestine. In Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. You see, Hebrew was the language of religion. Greek was the language of culture. And philosophy, I'm sorry, uh, Greek was the language of culture and philosophy. And Latin was the language of law and government. And guess what? All three, religion and culture and government had a part in crucifying Jesus. Verse 21 tells us, Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but 
He said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered him, what I have written, I have written. I mean, enough of these guys. You know, Pilate's inscription there was a dig at the Jews. He was the king of the Jews. The governor didn't like the fact that the Jews had bullied him into this verdict in the first place. He's not going to change what he's written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the normal number of executioners dispatched for this gruesome task was four soldiers and one centurion. And like all Jewish men, Jesus wore five pieces of clothing. He wore a turban or a headband. He wore a pair of sandals. He wore a leather belt, and he wore an outer coat. This was one article of clothing for each of the four men. But he also wore a tunic. And we're told now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. The fifth piece of clothing was an inner tunic, or sort of an undershirt. It was long. It would stretch from his shoulders down to his knees. And Jesus' inner tunic had no seams, which made it very valuable, too valuable to tear into pieces. And so the soldiers, they shot craps for God's coat. They rolled dice for it. Here's the ultimate irony. Jesus is bearing the sin of the world while the soldiers are gambling away his own shirt. God's back is torn and bleeding. His heart is breaking in pieces. The veil in the temple has now been torn in two from top to bottom while the soldiers are trying to avoid tearing his tunic. How ironic. They were so wrapped up in their materialism, they were oblivious to the most heroic and and consequential act in the history of the world. Verse 24 They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And and this all happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. In other words, it was all prophetic. John quotes here Psalm 22, verse 18. Have you ever heard the yuppies' prayer? Ever heard the yuppie's prayer? Here's the yuppie's prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my kusinart to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise. And that my analyst is wise. That all the wine I sip is white. And that my hot tub's watertight. The racquetball won't get too tough. And all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my cordless phone still works. And my career won't lose its perks. My microwave won't radiate, and my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close, and that my money market grows. And if I go broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they won't take. I pray that none of us get so wrapped up in earning a living, or paying the bills, or buying stuff, or getting ahead in this life, that we forget The ultimate end all. We need to look tonight. And we need to behold the man. Our little dealings pale in comparison to what Jesus did on the cross. His dying shows us His love. He wants us to take up our cross daily and follow Him. This is a good time to close your eyes and whisper with me. He did it for me. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys stood by Jesus while He hung from the cross. It's interesting, these Marys showed more devotion and more courage than most of the disciples showed. 
Now, I, I, I got on a little trivial pursuit this week, and I shared this with my wife, and she was pretty unimpressed by it, so you might be too, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. From 1880 to 1950, the number one name for little baby girls in America was Mary. Mary. For 70 years, the number one name was Mary. In the 1950s, the most popular name for girls was Linda. But Mary was second. Then in the 1960s, Mary got back up on the top spot. She took the top spot again. Mary was the most popular name. But this is no longer the case. Jennifer was the most popular name in the 70s and in the 80s. In the 90s, Ashley became the most popular name. In the new century, it's Emily. In 2008, the most popular name was Emma. And Mary ranked 97th out of the top 100. Now here's my point. For 80 years, American parents were so steeped in the Bible and in their love for the Bible, that it just seemed appropriate to them. It seemed second nature to them to name their little girls a biblical name. They called her Mary. Why is it, though, in recent years, no one wants to name their child Mary? It's another sign, just another sign, of the secularization of our society. How we've gotten away from God, and how we've neglected the Bible. Check out the other Gospels and you'll find that there was another name mentioned among these ladies at the cross. Salome was also with these women. She was the mother of James and John. And it's possible that Salome was there in addition to the four women mentioned here. Or it could be that Salome and and the woman that's here called his mother's sister that they could have been the same person, which would be very provocative because if Salome was Mary's sister, that would mean that Jesus, James, and John were all cousins. So he was a cousin to the Apostle John just like he was a cousin to John the Baptist. It's just, just a theory, just an idea. Mary then would have been John's aunt. And this family connection sort of explains what would happen next. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and this was John's way of referring to himself, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. You know, usually a widow was taken in by her family. And it could be that John and Mary were actually family. That she was Aunt Mary to John. At the very least, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, to me, it is so appalling what Roman Catholicism has done to Mary. I make no bones about this. This is just appalling. They've made her co-redemptrix. Not only does Jesus provide salvation, but so does Mary, according to Roman Catholicism. According to Romanism, she's the mother of God. She's sinless. She was a perpetual virgin. She ascended into heaven and never died. None of these doctrines are true. They're all heresy. Mary was a good girl, but she certainly wasn't divine. Mary was a sinner, just like you and me. She birthed other kids after Jesus. She died and her body was buried. She has no more clout with God than any other believer. We all go to God through Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Mary is not included. And yet, don't be guilty of a backlash, a Protestant backlash against Mary. For she does show exemplary devotion. Of all his disciples, it is impossible. I'm sorry, of all his disciples, it's possible that Mary made the greatest sacrifice to follow Jesus. Think about this now. Three decades earlier, her whole world was turned upside down by the news that she would miraculously birth a child. And now at the foot of the cross, Mary watches that child brutally tortured and executed. 
Her sacrifice has no atoning effects, but it is significant in God's sight. And it is an example to us of one young woman who surrendered her life to the will of God. And we can only admire Mary and appreciate her sacrifice. Think of what she must have gone through. Think of what must have floated through her mind as she stood there before the cross. Do you think she thought back to the myrrh that was given to Jesus by the wise men? The embalming fluid? That's a strange gift for a baby. Think she thought back on that myrrh? Now she understands the purpose of that present. Do you think she remembered the words of old Simeon there in the temple? You think they were ringing in her ears when he said, Yes, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now she feels that sting. Mary had surrendered all of her dreams to the will of God. And now Jesus rewards her sacrifice by ensuring her future. He turns her care over to the Apostle John. She would spend the rest of her life under his roof. From soldiers at the cross, to the women by the cross, to the Savior on the cross. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. This was the cheap vinegar wine that the soldiers drank. Earlier, Jesus had rejected the narcotic that he was offered. The drink that would have deadened his pain. No, no. There was no deadening of any pain here. Jesus would bear the full brunt and the full weight of our sin. But here he accepts this this moistening of his lips so that he can utter his final words. Hyssop is a leafy, absorbent plant. And they dipped the hyssop into the the potion so that they could reach up and they could apply it to Jesus' lips, which means that he probably was several feet off of the ground since they needed this branch to reach his lips. We're told, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. This phrase, it is finished, it's actually one word in the original language. It's tetelestai. And it was used in a number of ways. The servant who completed a task would say to his master, Te telestai, it is finished. The priest, when he found a sacrifice faultless, he would declare it, Te telestai, it is finished. An artist, when he placed the last brush stroke on the canvas, he would sign, Te telestai. His work was finished, complete, perfected. After a customer paid the balance of his bill, the merchant would write across the invoice, Te telestai. It's been paid in full. On the cross, Jesus did all of this and more. He completed the task he was sent to do. He was the flawless, sinless sacrifice. He completed the picture of redemption the Father had been painting from creation. And he settled our account. He paid in full the penalty for our sin. Jesus tied up all the loose ends that had been dangling since the beginning of time. He finished the puzzle. He filled up all that lacked. He invaded this imperfect world and He made everything of eternal value finally and totally and beautifully perfect on that day. On the cross, Jesus finished His work of redemption. Te telestai. And now all that comes afterwards is the realization of that work. There was an eccentric old evangelist. His name was Alexander Wooten. And he was once working in the shop behind his house. He was visited by a young man. He was exasperated. He was convicted. He was struggling with his sin. And he had this eager look on his face. The young man said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Wooten replied, It's too late, young man. It's too late. The man was was frustrated. He said, please, is there anything I can do to be saved? The evangelist said again, it's too late for you to do anything. And then he said, for the work has already been done. And all you have to do is believe. This, my friend, is the glorious hope of the gospel. It's not up to us to do this or that. Jesus has done all of the work. All that's left for us to do 
is to believe. Here's the rallying cry of saints throughout the ages. Te telestai. It is finished. Once you have trusted in Jesus, His work on the cross, all that needs to be done has been done for you to be saved and for you to be victorious. When Jesus returned to heaven, He sat down on the right hand of the Father. His work was finished. And that's where He's sitting now. He's resting. And we need to rest in Him and in the work He's done for us. Here again. Would you please close your eyes and whisper? He did this for me. Verse 30 tells us, And bowing His head, He gave up His spirit. The word translated bow literally means to recline your head on a pillow. Think about this. Jesus has now finished His work, and what is He doing? He's laying His head into the Father's lap. Notice too the expression, He gave up His spirit. His life wasn't taken from Him. Jesus was not a victim. He was the victor. Jesus had called the shots from the beginning to the end. He voluntarily laid down His life for you and me. Well, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, notice John says that this was a special Sabbath. It was a high day. A normal Sabbath was celebrated on Saturday. But during the Passover week, a second Sabbath was inserted on Friday. And John is telling us here that Jesus was crucified prior to this special Friday Sabbath. The day of preparation would have been Thursday of that week. And this is why a lot of Bible scholars, myself included, not that I'm a Bible scholar, but I'm a Bible believer and a reader, But I believe that Jesus was not crucified on Friday, but on Thursday. In the big picture, it doesn't really matter. But we should celebrate Good Thursday, in my opinion, rather than Good Friday. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 40? He says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And when you take that literally, it's hard to account for three days and three nights, 72 hours, if Jesus was only in the grave from Friday until Sunday morning. Also, the words days and nights, I think, discount partial days, which is how some people try to explain it. The Jewish day was reckoned from sunset to sunset. And since crucifixion ended late in the afternoon, the women had to hurry up the burial in order to observe the special Friday Sabbath that would have begun at sundown. I believe in the Thursday crucifixion. But you do your research and you make that decision on your own. Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. This was the Roman sole act of mercy. Once the victim's legs were broken, there was no way then for them to push themselves up and expand their lungs and take a breath. And so the crucified person, once his legs were broken, would die quickly of asphyxiation. It would just put him out of his misery. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, he did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And here we know how Jesus died. For medical doctors will tell you the only time that blood breaks down into water and plasma is in the case of a ruptured heart. Jesus literally died of a ruptured heart. What does that mean? He died of a broken heart. Close your eyes and whisper with me. He did this for me. Jesus died of a broken heart. For me and for you. You know, there's also some intriguing symbolism here. Recall when God created a bride for Adam. He opened up Adam's side and he removed a rib. And with that rib, he fashioned Eve. Here again, God opens up the side of the last Adam, Jesus. And he removes blood and water from his side. That with which he will fashion for Jesus a bride, the church. Amazing. Verse 35 And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. 
John's saying, I was an eyewitness. I was there. And he was reporting these events to stir up our faith. He's encouraging us to close our eyes and whisper to ourselves, He did it for me. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of His bones shall be broken. The bones in Jesus' legs were never broken as a fulfillment of Scripture. Exodus 12 verse 46 commands the Jews not to break the bones of the Passover lamb. And Jesus is our Passover. Verse 37 points out another fulfillment of prophecy. And again another Scripture says, They shall look on Him whom they pierced. This is from Zechariah 12, verse 10. For at Jesus' second coming, Israel in the last days will look on Jesus and they will finally realize their mistake. In the end, they'll repent and they'll believe. Verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Notice this. Joseph of Arimathea, he had been a secret saint. He'd been an undercover Christian. But now he comes out of the closet. And I hope you'll do the same. In a day when anybody and everybody with any twisted perversion feels free to come out of the closet and flaunt their sin, it's high time we who love Jesus go public and come out of the closet and let everybody know. Let's get vocal about our faith. We need to be Jesus freaks and not worry about what other people say. He did this for me. Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took the body of Jesus. And there's an ancient record of the conversation that took place between Joseph and Pilate. Pilate says to Joseph, You know, Joseph, you're you're usually a pretty stingy fella. And are you sure that you want to give away a a perfectly good tomb? And Joseph answers, he says, Oy vey, governor, Jesus only needs it for the weekend. Don't worry, it's just a three-day lease. Verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Wow, he should have saved his money. Here's the biggest waste of money in all the history of the world. Burial spices for the body of Jesus. You know, it's interesting too, the amount of spices Nicodemus supplied. A hundred pounds of spices was the preparations for a king. I'm sure it revealed Nicodemus' feelings about Jesus. He had embraced Jesus is king. Verse 40. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Do you know why the lily is the flower that is most associated with Easter? Do you know why? It's because the lily blossom is shaped like a trumpet. And in Bible times, trumpets were used to announce big, important events. And in the final two chapters, John blows the trumpet of Easter. And he sounds the good news. Jesus is risen. He did that for you too.